90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty well. Getting tired of being online. How about you? (laughs) Yep, we had probably an inch of sneet Hmm. or... Freezing rain, freezing rain, snow, fro, I don't know what it was. It was a very (laughs) odd mix of wintry precipitation that glazed everything in ice and basically shut us down for three or four days. Oh, that's impressive. We were supposed to get that, but we did not. Um, It was very sad. We did get an awful lot of thunder sleet, and it was mixed in, because it was convective, it was mixed in with hail, and it was super cool. Yeah. I, I heard that we had some thunder associated with ours, but I had noise-canceling earbuds in working, so <laughs> I had no idea. Well, okay, so you'll appreciate this. I was on my way to Taco Bueno <laughs> on Monday for lunch after they had canceled everything. Bad decision number one. <laughs> um, after they had canceled everything, I, of course, like the true Oklahoman that I am, said, well, I'm going to go outside. <laughs> and so I went to Bueno, and... There was this lightning strike, and it was in my rearview mirror that, I don't know, it had to hit maybe a 1,000 feet behind me in the middle of the road. Oh, yeah. It was super exciting. It was probably more than a 1,000 feet because, as I found out from my GPS, I don't know what a 1,000 feet actually is. <laughs> <laughs> but it was certainly no more than a quarter mile away from me. Um, so that was the only one that I saw, but there was some awesome thunder that accompanied it. And we had these huge chunks. It was really cool there in Sarkis because I have a north facing window to sit there and be like, oh, sleet, sleet, sleet. Oh, that's hail. <laughs> there was right. <laughs> like, yeah, a wide variety of grain sizes of frozen precipitation. So did you get out your grain size card? Oh, man, I wish. The windows were too dirty to even be able to see it, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, thanks, OU. I keep promising it's going to be cleaned, but <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, so we've talked about before, right, that there's a lot of factors that can go into wintry precipitation and the nucleation of growth of ice crystals. Uh-huh. That is exactly right. And so we should take that to some other clear slash milky white crystal. And I thought that we should finally talk about the Nyaka Cave. Yeah, and these are super cool giant crystals that were featured, well, on the cover of every magazine when they were discovered. But I remember them on Natural Geographic. Oh. Or National Geographic magazine. Yeah, exactly. And we actually have, so these are those huge crystals that you see. Um, and they're from Nayaka, Mexico, which is in Chihuahua. And this, we have a few of them in our uh, geology library. And so many times you see those pictures and people like report them as fakes, which is really funny. <laughs> well, you know, now in the, the age of everything being faked on the internet, yeah, it's super easy to see that and go, no, it's Photoshop. Yeah, but it's exa- not. exactly. And here's what I didn't realize: I didn't realize that those. I mean, I remember like the big fervor about them, but I guess it's weird to think that they were found in 2000. That doesn't seem very long ago. I mean, 
it's 23 years ago now, but that it's doesn't recent. seem like long ago. <laughs> it, it's in the recent 23 years. <laughs> um, it was yeah, it's like yeah. I would say that feels like 10 years ago, but in my mind, 1990 is 10 years ago. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so never mind. Um, yeah, so that's why the fervor and all the pictures, and maybe why you've heard of them. Um, these were found during mining operations, this area of New, of Mexico, um, not New Mexico, old Mexico, <laughs> has a lot of mines. We'll talk about that geological history coming up, but that one was, is really deep. So it's 300 meters down, right? Almost a thousand feet down that they were mining and just came upon this cavern that has these massive crystals that are really big. And really big means like 10 meters long, yeah. a meter wide. A meter wide. That's the part that's almost more impressive to me than the 10 meters in length. Yeah, I mean, when I find crystals going crystal digging, if it's an inch oh, that's huge. Wide, it's, it's massive, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's huge. You can find those little baby quartz crystals all day long up there, right? But... Yeah, so 11.4 meters long was the longest one that they've measured, and a meter wide. And these things, these huge crystals, are made of gypsum. Right, and so gypsum, actually, you you mentioned you have some of this in your library, but you also have, in Oklahoma, a lot of gypsum. It's also in every Mm -hmm. house because it's your drywall. Yeah, which is not made of... One meter large crystals. <laughs> also a filler in your snack cakes, but more on that. Another. Oh, time. gross. <laughs> I mean, it's good for you, right? It's got calcium and some yeah, other so stuff. <laughs> calcium sulfate and water. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I just digitally lectured on this. This week, we talked about different um, chemical weathering mechanisms and dehydration or hydration is one mechanism. And so if you dehydrate gypsum, it becomes just CaSO4, which is anhydrite, which comes in later when we talk about how these guys nucleated. Right. And that comes into play out in the panhandle of Oklahoma, right, where you can go digging for these crystals, and they're seasonal because of the rainfall. Right. So I had never been until a year ago out to the salt flats. Have you been out there? I haven't, no. Yeah, so I had never been, which was crazy. And we went out, we were filming for one of my friends has um, this really cool geology channel. And so we were filming the salt flats. And it's out in Jet, Oklahoma. So it's in like the northern, sort of to the west part of Oklahoma. And it's this huge, massive playa lake, essentially, right? And just like you said, it's seasonal because gypsum is kind of an evaporate. Um, and you can, underneath the surface, you get out there and you start digging and you will find pockets of these gypsum crystals, um, of the variety selenite, which means they're pretty clear, but they've have incorporated in them little sand. And so the sand sort of looks like hourglasses when it grows along the, uh, crystal faces of the gypsum. So those Oklahoma salt, salt crystals, as they're called, even though they're gypsum, are pretty pretty famous and really cool. And these gypsums in the Nyaka Cave 
art. I mean, they're kind of like a milky white. They're not super clear, um, but they don't have those kind of inclusions that they're actually really pure that the gypsum that we have here does. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, uh, we, we found these 23 years ago, but you said mining has been in place a long time here. And I'm, you have to assume that that has something to do with how these got there. Right. Exactly. Um, so mining's been happening over a hundred years and I took this whole ore minerals course and I had to rein myself in <laughs> on discussing how this happens, <laughs> but you're exactly right. Like that's why, that's why these happened here. And as is the case with lots of weird crystallization and especially ore mineralization, um, it all starts with a magma chamber, right? You got to heat up something somehow, and that's the way we do this. Right. So mm -hmm. the magma gets emplaced, and, well, because Fourier, heat transfer. Right. Exactly. And this magma is, I mean, I say it's fairly young because 26 million years ago doesn't seem like that big a deal. Um, <laughs> so it was in place, uh, it's about two to three kilometers below where the cave of crystals is now, which is 300 meters down. So that magma body is pretty large. It heats up all this stuff, just like you said. And as that magma comes into this cold rock, it heats stuff up, and it has these different time periods where it essentially boils off. That's a whole class that I took, <laughs> and I'm just going to leave it there. But, the <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so this process clearly fractures the rocks, right? This pressure has to go somewhere. So you get some faulting that occurs associated with this, or these waters will travel along pre-existing faults. We talked about that a little bit last week, right? And this water is weird. <laughs> it's real weird water. And that's because of what's in it, right? Mm -hmm. So when you have a magma chamber, when we talk about magma chambers cooling down, right, you have some lava. It's got a certain chemistry. Well, it's magma. It's not lava. Sorry. <laughs> and it's a certain chemistry. And certain minerals will form first. Do you remember that thing? Oh, yeah. It's something about a reaction sequence, right? Yeah. Bowen's reaction series. Exactly. So certain minerals will form First, it's just how it works because of thermodynamics, okay? Um, and so you have some cooling, and this boil-off thing, the thermodynamics get a little weird. And so what happens as this water goes out, it's filled with all the weird ions that don't easily combine together to make minerals. you got weird stuff. And this is where you get like your native metals, like golds and silvers, where those ions don't interact, especially not first, <laughs> to be deposited. And sometimes these hydrothermal waters can carry this stuff for a long ways, depositing it all along the way. And that's what you do when you're mining, right? You find one of these little veins, essentially, and you want to kind of follow it back to its main 
source. And that's why generally these big open pit mines are kind of circular because you're trying to find all of these sort of broken rocks that are filled up with these weird, crazy waters. And in this area, that is also happening. It's not what the caves are made of, but there's a lot of lead and zinc deposits that are near here, which is what's getting mined around this area. Right. And it's, I mean, this always amazes me when you're looking in a mine and how somebody's trying to plan it to maximize what they get. You've got to be good. You've got to know the area, but you've got to have a lot of gut intuition about how the system is working as well. Right. And oh, that's where all yeah. these old miners have <laughs> intuitions about what to do to follow a vein or it's mm-hmm. pretty amazing. They're, they're better geologists than, than geologists a lot oh, of Oh, yeah. Ab- that is absolutely true. And it's very specific to the area you're in because it doesn't... Because of the hydrothermal nature and, like, the weird ions that are going through here, it's not like it's a perfect sequence that you can follow. Like how you can follow metamorphic grades, right? You know, A comes first, then right. that turns into B, turns into C. So you can have some weird stuff that occurs, and it takes that knowledge to be like, oh, well, I know if I see this, I know that my native metal is somewhere, you know, within half a kilometer of this area and things like that. It's very intriguing to me, you know, that that part of mining for sure is very, very interesting. Right. So Mm -hmm. you've got this ion-filled water coming up. You've got water coming down from the surface. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then you get anhydrite being deposited, which we said is gypsum without the water, Mm -hmm. which is kind of funny because it's traveling in water. (laughs) I know. (laughs) This is... This is weird. And I am not a mineralogist, so I'm not going to say I totally get this. Um, but like you're alluding to, the rock that this stuff is traveling through will also affect it too. And the host rock in this case is limestone, which is where all this calcium is coming from. Because this water is hot. Really hot. Yes. Yeah. Very hot. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So conditions in the cave of crystals so far above the magma chamber are currently about 58 c all the time mm-hmm. yeah that's that's about 135 for mm-hmm. those of us in fahrenheit yeah so all the time it's that and yeah it is weird because it's in water but you're right that's what formed first was this anhydrite as it was going through and it did form in water, but it's more stable at higher temperatures, which is why that's what came first, but that's not what's there now. And this was all much higher than 136 Fahrenheit, oh, 58 C at that time. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> We're dealing with pressurized, superheated fluids. Mm-hmm, yes. And then as it starts cooling, you actually get anhydrite dissolving and gypsum being deposited because now we're at a low enough temperature to allow that water to go into the crystal structure. Right. So dissolution, another one of those chemical weathering things. So you dissolve this anhydrite and re-precipitate this gypsum. And the deal with why these gypsum crystals are so huge, um, 
there is some study, because obviously when this was found, the first thing, mineralogists just flooded in there, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so they go in there. And the way that they nucleated was different, um, a different mechanism, I guess. I'm actually not super sure of the specifics. I think this is something we should probably talk to someone smarter than ourselves about this. <laughs> um, but these, like, there's these like nano clusters of this calcium sulfate floating around. And calcium sulfate, like we just said, can be a lot of different minerals. But the temperature as it lowered down out of anhydrites, preferred, preferred um, temperature ranges, and we go into gypsum preferred temperature ranges, then you get these calcium sulfates combining with the waters. And because it is so deep, it took a long, long time to cool down, which is the key here. Right. And you got to remember, temperature is a continuous field. You can't go from 100 Celsius to 80 Celsius and not go through 81, 82, 83, 84. Yep. So there is going to be some perfect zone in distance from the magma body where the temperature profile is perfect to allow giant crystals to grow. And because it's cooling so slowly, that is one of the things that you learn in Geology 101 the slower something cools, the larger the crystals are. So if you see something that's a pegmatite versus something that's got really tiny grains, you can tell something about the environment in which it was emplaced. Which is what's so cool about rocks. <laughs> mm -hmm. So instantly you know this. It's one of the first things we teach in any intro geology class um, is that granites form underground because they're thermally protected. They cool slowly. Basalts, you can't see the crystals. They're microscopic. They formed above ground because they were essentially quenched as they erupted. So this proves that, which is cool. Yeah, so we, we understand something about crystal physics. Something, that's right. Um, as you said earlier, obviously you have to have nucleation and something to nucleate on. That's where these weird little nano-like nano clusters of the calcium sulfates come in much like cloud condensation nuclei same physics different time scales um very different in this case though uh, yeah uh, so you know growth rates on the order of a ten thousandth of a nanometer per second yeah also what a weird way to describe that growth rate growth rate right like come on I, I do enjoy in per second units, though, because I know a lot of people think, like you think about the tectonic plates, like, oh, they move imperceptibly slow. Like it's basically stopped. It's just over a long period of time, it accumulates. Mm -hmm. Not really. Like right. You calculate, it's constantly it, moving. Exactly. And it's constantly moving in some areas at about the rate your fingernails grow. Mm -hmm. And think about that. Like your fingernails don't grow in spurts overnight. Like, they're yep. constantly getting a little longer at nanometers per second time scales. And here you uh, go. <laughs> right, except this is about 10,000 times slower than that. So to get this one meter thick crystal, it's about a million years. One million years. 
Oh man. Um, which which to geologists is not that much. Virtually nothing, right? So these things have been around. Well, that magma body came in twenty six million years ago. So yeah, I've had some time. <laughs> right. What's really cool when we talk about this, you know, big crystals underground, lots of time. Obviously, they had a lot of space in this area to grow or else they couldn't grow big. Um, But the crystal size still would have been large. Like they wouldn't have been little microscopic crystals. But nearby, I say nearby, (laughs) uh, if we travel about 200 meters up, from the Cave of Crystals is the Cave of Swords. And this one is, if you've looked at the Cave of Crystals first, it's not nearly as impressive. But it oh. is very impressive in its own right. Cave of Swords. If you look at the Cave of Swords first, it's not as impressive. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, correct. It's super neat looking. But it would be amazing anywhere else in the world. I know. Other than buy these giant crystals. <laughs> like, isn't that unfortunate? <laughs> it's so unfortunate. Um, this picture is just mind blowing of this cave of swords, and I know you don't watch it, but this one hundred percent looks like a clear version of the Iron Throne from Game of Thrones. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. One hundred percent. So that's the. That's the picture you need to have in your head of the Cave of Swords. I wouldn't be surprised if George R. R. Martin, yeah, made that based on this picture. (laughs) Um, But also, you have these very, they're still very well developed, right? Like, you can tell these individual crystals really well. Right. They're not, like, clumpy or anything. So they've had space to grow because they have well-developed crystal faces, but in general, the crystals are much smaller. Um, I read that like the longest one is two meters long. This picture, none of them are even approaching that, right? Like, no, I mean, half a meter. Yeah, quarter at the, meter at the most. At the most. So this one was discovered much earlier, which makes sense as you're mining. Yeah, nineteen ten. Go deeper with more time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so nineteen ten. This was discovered. All these are still gypsum, just smaller and more numerous. Um, And this makes sense because those hydrothermal fluids moving out from that magma chamber would have cooled considerably in that 200 meters difference from the cave of crystals to the cave of swords. And if you have much more rapidly cooling then you don't have as much time to grow. Therefore, you have smaller crystals. Same crystal nucleation, right? But just much more of it because it's cold. Yeah, and there's it's cold. There's less overburden, so it's losing heat faster. Every, the area is larger because you've got a sphere, so inverse square right there. Like, it's really cooling a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Yep. So more nucleation sites. So you had more cloud condensation nuclei. This is the difference between tiny droplets in a cloud and big cloud droplets, which actually has a lot to do with reflectivity and therefore climate. I'll just end it there. That's a whole nother thing to talk about. 
I thought you were talking about radar reflectivity. So oh oh no 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 I'm sorry no <laughs> it has solar, a lot to do with that too <laughs> solar radiation reflectivity or radar reflectivity yeah exactly again same physics super cool mm-hmm. yeah I mean radio waves are just light that we can't see but that's again a different topic man we're writing all these down right <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> um yeah so this cave of sores also super cool been known for much longer as you kept going down found even cooler stuff so imagine you know you're chasing these lead and zinc deposits in these limestones much like from our neck of the woods right the tri-state mining district in arkansas and oklahoma and missouri all has the same sort of lead zinc deposits in limestones but man can you imagine breaking into one of these deposits yeah, I mean, that'd be wild. Yeah, completely wild. And so these grew in water, like you said, and they are looking for lead and zinc. And so they frequently pump water, like, out of the area. And by doing that and keeping these things dry, they're actually changing. The crystals aren't super stable and they're changing to other stuff. Isn't that weird? Yes. And <laughs> while I do get the desire to preserve them, it's hindering the operation of the mine to do so, which is kind of a funny... Like, they're trying to get to other geologically valuable things. These crystals right. don't really matter to them. Mm-hmm. But, of course, everybody else wants to save the crystals. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um and it, I was reading about him. I think it said some of like the bigger ones are like twenty tons or something like that. Yeah, is how much they weigh. And so talking about taking them out is kind of ridiculous too. So do you take them out to preserve them? You know, obviously they were formed in water, and the water helps with that massive amount. And they might collapse anyway if you keep the chambers dry um yeah so there's a lot of it's never straightforward right (laughs) no Mm -hmm. yeah and they did i also read this and this i'm not quite sure i couldn't really follow what exactly has happened now but i think it is flooded now the chamber and so there isn't access to it um but they said they might be pumping again and letting scientists back in. But they said they also, in that first 10 years, had a lot of people that got a pretty good control over, like, this is exactly what happened to make these. Like, it seemed like a very straightforward scientific story. Right. Mm-hmm. So while they may be, they may look fake, they're not we have a very good way of understanding, you know, we've proved this is how they nucleate. This is not surprising that this has happened. It's really neat that it happened. Um, But maybe soon they'll reopen it and we can see what has happened to them in the past. um, Yeah. 23 years since we unearthed them in the first place. So what's our, uh, what's our excuse going to be to try to go down there? Gosh, I know. The whole time I was reading about them, I'm like, what can we study <laughs> to, uh-huh. get, to get in here? 
that's really what geology is, is trying to figure out oh. what you need to study to get to the places you want to go. A hundred percent. I I had a student who was ex-military and he came up to me and he's like, you know, geology is just like the Navy of the sciences. And I was like, what? And he's like, and if you want to send hate mail, we will provide his email address. Ah, man, it was the best. He was like, you just drink a lot of beer and just go wherever you want. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, we could go to Death Valley and experience half of this. But the other thing with this 136 degrees is usually it's like 95 to 99% humidity down there. So, I mean, it is getting continuously pumped out. And you also have to think about, well, what happens if the pumping system fails? And the answer is you find yourself in a watery tomb. Ooh, scary. Okay. Maybe I'm good. Maybe I'm good. We'll just go in a submarine instead. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Oh, yeah. If only there was a way to look at the rocks without actually having to touch them. And that brings us to everybody's favorite segment of the show. (laughs) Fun Paper Friday. This we're is all a, about the transitions on I, this episode. I know. That wasn't even planned. That was really good. I know that you were teeing it up for me, though. So, um, <laughs> This is really old, but I thought it'd be cool to talk about. Oh, be- come on. <laughs> These crystals aren't... It seems like yesterday, <laughs> and then a paper from 2016 is really old. <laughs> hey, tech papers, they don't age well, right? <laughs> <laughs> But crystals are millions of years old to begin with. (laughs) That's really funny. Don't point out my dichotomies. Um, (laughs) Anyway, uh, I don't, I think this is from you. It's hard to tell in our massive list of fun papers. Um, It might be from Stephen, not sure. (laughs) But this is about um, the Stanford News article that it came from. I think I have the actual paper here. Yeah, the actual paper in Geophysical Research Letters is Effects of Changes in Rock Microstructures on Permeability, 3D Printing Investigation by Head and Venorio. And this was coming out right as I was finishing my PhD. I remember this well. Okay. All right. So why I said we should talk about this, because this week, um, I know you hate to talk about this, so this is why I will. I got my temporary tooth put in. Right. Oh, dental work. <laughs> it's so cool. So it had this little metal cap on it. And because I'm cheap and I wanted to wait till January to maximize my insurance, right? It, I've had this little metal cap for a while, like five months. Um, and when they take this little metal cap off, because I have a massive hole in my jaw that is filled up with this like pre-threaded, you know, little metal thing awaiting my awaiting my tooth he has this great it's a tiny little socket wrench and it makes like the socket wrench noise oh. <laughs> and it, it makes me laugh every time i had to stop he had to take it out of my mouth because i was laughing so hard and he's like you are ridiculous <laughs> and my husband's a mechanic so it's really funny to think this is what an engine hears when there are sockets like <laughs> <laughs> At which point he said, you're certifiable. Like, let me put this tooth in. <laughs> I mean, that is true. Yeah. <laughs> so he's like socketing this thing off, which is super fun. 
And then it's so cool because this tooth, I was like, show me this tooth. Like, I want to see everything about what's happening, right? And so it's threaded, the thing inside my jaw is threaded. And this tooth goes down there and it's got one of those little, and he basically sticks this little thing back in. He's got a little nut on there and he just ratches it down again. <laughs> it was so cool. The other cool part about it was he said, he's like, you know, showing me with a mirror the hole in my mouth with that thing. And he's like, or oh, we can look at this. And he pulls out this 3D printed my mouth. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, you know, back in the day, like when I got my first crown put on, when I broke my tooth on a piece of popcorn when I was 18 years old, you know, you and like, they'd have those trays filled with that dental stuff and you'd take like a bite on it. Alginate, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So this time they had done, they had this camera. It was just a camera on a stick. It looked like a toothbrush. And he just ran it all over my mouth, which was super fun to watch it like populate, right? Then I'm like, that's really neat. And what came out of that scan was this 3D exact replica of my mouth. <laughs> and that's what they used to like recreate my tooth. So they had that and they put in the little threaded hole and made a little model of my gum on that little spot and artistically created this tooth that went along with it. And so when they send it back, like that screwed into the model and he was like unscrewing <laughs> it. Yeah, he's like unscrewing it and talking to me about it. And I keep looking at it, and he goes, you want to keep that, don't you? <laughs> I was like, of course I do. It's amazing. So, so you have it now, I assume. So I have a 3D-printed model of my teeth on my desk. <laughs> it's so neat. <laughs> I've been biting everyone with it, like my dog. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, you could commit a crime, bite somebody with it, and... Exactly. Somebody else's 3D print. Exactly. It's the way to go. It's not very sharp, but yeah, it makes a very satisfying clacking noise. <laughs> <laughs> and so I saw this and I was like, that's cool. Obviously, you can do this with rocks. I've seen you do it with hailstones, but this is on like a very micro level. And the reasoning behind it, I didn't quite get until I went to the paper and I was like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, the reasoning is we have a lot of trouble understanding what makes rocks permeable or impermeable. Mm -hmm. The rock that looks the same from the outside can have a wildly different permeability from a rock a half a kilometer different in the quarry. Uh, they can be wildly different from the rock one foot away. It doesn't even right. have to be that far away, right? It's easy to think when you're thinking about a sandstone that there are grains in here. There's holes in between the grains. That's the porosity. How they're con how those holes are connected or the permeability. It's easy to see how that forms, right? But it's less so in a carbonate. And it wasn't until I went on this week-long carbonates field trip to a modern carbonate environment, so where things aren't rocks yet. <laughs> but they will be rocks. Um, I mean, not only was it clearly a beach vacation, but it <laughs> <laughs> we took a twin otter plane 
up into the air and for an hour flew fairly low across this platform. We were in the Turks and the Caicos across that platform and to look and see how different the environments looked from the air just right next to each other. It became clear that like it's really hard to understand that porosity and permeability in carbonates because very often that comes from dissolution after the fact, right? And you'll have these two little cores of rock and you do your experiments where you put them in the chamber and you see what their porosity and permeability are. And those numbers can be very similar, but then when you look at the rocks, you're like, these pores look totally different or this porosity, the way it is, is totally different. How can that happen? And that's where this comes in. Yeah, it's all about how the microscopic structure of a rock and the tortuosity of the path that the fluid <laughs> has to take can change the large-scale properties. Now, we can argue all day about how much a one-inch rock core represents a body of rock. Yeah, it doesn't and, at all, but... Well, I mean, <laughs> but I, it I'll does. win that argument both ways. Uh, exa- yep. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, but it still does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No matter what your position is, I can take the opposing view yep. and... Likewise. <laughs> ...not be wrong, because... It's both. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, so they wanted to see, can we control this in a way that we can understand? Yeah. So we- can we prescribe a tortuosity? Can we make two identical samples that should have two identical porosities and poor apertures but have different porosities? Well, can we dial each of these things individually to understand how microstructures affect macro properties? Yeah, that's that's where the like super coolness of this comes in, because <laughs> I thought it was really funny that they compared like this thousand dollar three D printer and this like tens of thousand dollar three D printer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's like oh, this is just to test this, but now you have these two super cool tools. <laughs> mm-hmm. Obviously, the expensive one did a lot better. <laughs> Right. I mean, it had, it, you're able to use wax to support cavities, which is a big thing. These mm-hmm. are uh, light activated resin printers, not the kind of squirt plastic out kind. Right. Yeah. Uh, which we call FDM. Okay. Great. But uh, yeah, so one of the things they point out in here is not only can we take a CAT scan of a rock, which I've actually sent some samples off for CAT scan before. Mm-hmm. It's very cool what you get back. Oh, yeah. We've done it um, numerous times. Um, for looking at shales because it's so hard to see anything in them. Yeah, so you you get back a kind of a 3D x-ray and they were able to print that. They were able to make some custom structures and print those. But one of the uses that I hadn't thought of that they point out in their article is we could take three-dimensional scans of rocks that are available, say, on a sample return mission from Mars. yeah print them and allow scientists to look at them not just in a 2d picture or maybe with 3d glasses but actually hold the physical representation of that sample Mm -hmm. and think about which one of these do i want to put on the little rocket canister Mm -hmm. yeah and that is awesome i wondered since this is so old of a study (laughs) if that had happened yet you know if they've taken some of these Mars rocks and 
3D printed him with this in mind since that's coming very quickly. Surely they have. Surely, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I've seen some of the 3D printed samples. I've also seen uh, Rock Mechanic starting to use 3D printing to prescribe roughnesses to samples to understand roughness and fractal roughness effects on friction. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool stuff. We've actually recently been playing with 3D printing uh, shuttle radar topography mission data. Oh, cool. At our shop, which has been very fun. Yeah, I bet, man. That's all kinds of coffee tables you could make with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> each little five inch by five inch landscape takes about 14 hours to print. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Well, I'll put my order in now so you can get busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but no, 3D printing, you know, we've talked about it many times on here. It's a fantastic tool for manufacturing. It's a fantastic tool for scientific study. And while it's not perfect and there are limitations, in this case, the limitations of 3D printing are less than those of the limitations of nature. Yeah, yep. Yeah, that's a really cool study. And now I have my teeth on my desk, which is fun too. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, no, this was a, a great paper to get to and uh, actually be fun to talk to some folks that are working in this area now, seeing mm-hmm. what what's new. We've looked at metal 3D printers. Ooh. Uh, very, very neat. Currently still far out of our price range, but give it another decade. Excellent. Can't wait. <laughs> yep. So... <laughs> If you've got a 3D printed model of your mouth that you would like to send in, <laughs> or anything else for that matter, Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us? Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. I'm sure there are still people in the Slack channel. We should get back on there. Slack, we're on the um, Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. As always, thank you for supporting our crazy weekly ramblings. You can do that at patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.